You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, uh, last Sunday, I popped my head in on the new members class. That's every other Sunday at 5 p.m. at Faith and Liberty, uh, 109 Second Street. And I love the beginning of this class because there's always new faces and interesting people. Uh, At the beginning of the class, essentially everybody says who they are, uh, where they're from, and sometimes what they do. And so anyways, this past week, uh, there was someone in there who was an interior designer. I forgot your name, so if you're here, just just uh, come up to me at the end. We've never had one of those in a new members class because half of you are political hacks, but uh, <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool that we had uh, an interior designer. So I made the quick joke that I needed help decorating my living room, and Bradley, another pastor here who is also in the room, goes, interior designer, not decorator. And I was pretty shocked by that because apparently there's a difference. Anyways, uh, later on, I was in the car and I thought to myself, you know what, I, I don't really need any help decorating. I think I've done a pretty good job. And uh, a few days later, uh, I was reinforced in my, uh, my decorating skill. During small group, a few of us were, were watching the State of the Union, and one of the guys posted up on Instagram a uh, picture of my living room, and I thought again to myself, I have done such a good job on this living room. I mean, I I guess I had a little help, but uh, it looks really good. Uh, Now, in reality, it looks all right. It also serves as as an office, but uh, I probably like it because there's things in there that represent me and things I like. Uh, We generally decorate our apartments or our living spaces, or our homes with things we like, and it ends up representing us in some way. I say all this because in our passage this morning, we're looking at the most famous interior and exterior decorating passages in the Bible. We're looking at God's plans for his temporary dwelling place in the wilderness called the tabernacle. It's Yahweh's house. It's God's house in the desert. And in this passage, he's going to give instructions for how it's supposed to look. What's supposed to be inside the house. And what we'll find this morning is that just like when we decorate, the room ends up representing us. So too, God's decorating, God's design, God's house represents him. It represents who he is and the kind of relationship he wants with us. It's kind of a visual aid we'll see this morning. Uh, The way the furniture is made and placed, and how the structure is built, teaches us something about his character and the way we experience him. And so that's really the main point uh, where we're going this morning. It's going to be up on the screen. And really the main point of this sermon, the old tabernacle shows us the living God. The old tabernacle shows us the living God. Said another way, the ancient, now gone tabernacle teaches us something about the forever existing God, who he is and how we experience him 
today. Now my, my points are going to be up on the screen and they're going to flow right from the text. Uh, here at King's Church, we believe the Bible. We teach from the Bible, especially in passages that may be a little bit more challenging like this one. And in this passage, we're going to see several pieces. Uh, and like a museum curator or a tour guide, I'm going to focus on these items and we're going to see how they point us to God, how they represent his character, how they teach us about the kind of relationship he wants with us as his people, how they ultimately point us to the God who loves us and gave himself for us. So first we'll see the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see that in the opening verses of Exodus 25. We'll see the table and the bread. We'll see that in Exodus 25 verses 23 through 30. And then thir uh, thirdly, we'll see the golden lampstand and the oil. We'll see that in Exodus 25 verses 31 through 40, and then also I'll allude to uh, chapter 27, the latter verses of that chapter. Now, for those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time, or maybe you've been in and out over the last few weeks, as a church we have been studying the book of Exodus. In the first half of the book of Exodus, we meet the God who literally rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. Now in the second part of the book of Exodus, which we started just a few weeks ago, where we are now, we meet the God who is getting Egypt, the old ways, out of his people as he builds them into a nation. We saw a few weeks ago how after about a, a year of wandering in the desert, Moses leads the Hebrew people to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai, uh, a famous mountain. And at this mountain, God invites the Hebrew people into a covenant relationship with himself. He says that if they do, if, if they enter into relationship with him, they'll be shaped by his laws, by his teachings, so much so that they'll become a kingdom of priests. That means they'll become God's representatives to other nations as to what he's like, who he is, and what he does. And so the Hebrew people eagerly agree and so Moses goes up to this mountain, and he begins to meet with God. And we find in the book of Exodus that on the top of that mountain, God appears in the form of clouds and thunder and lightning. And on the mountain, God opens the terms, the basic terms of the covenant with the famous Ten Commandments. These are basically like the, the terms of the agreement as to how Israel or the Hebrews relate to God and how God relates to them. Moses writes these down. He goes down the mountain. He shares with the people. And again, they're so eager and willing to accept. Once they do, God takes this relationship a bit further. He takes it another step. He tells Moses that he himself wants to dwell with his people. He wants to live in the midst of his people. They're all nomads, essentially, at this point, uh, waiting to get into the promised land, but God says he wants to dwell with them. He wants to be present with them. And so what follows is seven chapters of very detailed instructions on God's temporary house called the tabernacle. It'll be up on the screen, but basically this structure has really uh, two major components. Number one, there's the outer courtyard with an altar. And then there's this tent that you see up on the screen with an outer room called the holy place and an inner room called the holy of holies or 
the most holy place where God would appear in power. Uh, it was the, the, the white hot presence of God would appear there in the Holy of Holies. And so this morning, we're going to start this little tour uh, in that most sacred room, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And we'll look at the primary item in that room called the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 10, they shall make or you shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now, for those familiar with pop culture, this, of course, is the ark referenced in the famous movie Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that great movie, the ark is reimagined a bit. It's reimagined a bit to be like a Marvel Infinity Stone or like a magical box. There's power in that movie imbued in the box. Hitler is essentially trying to get uh, this box to make his soldiers invincible. But what we find in the Bible is this box or this chest or this ark really doesn't have any magical powers imbued inside of it. It's just a box, of course, until God comes. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. That's about four feet long by two feet wide and two feet high. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony, that is the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. The Lord adds, verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. A better translation here would be a, an atonement cover or a lid. It's essentially a lid that goes on top of this chest or this ark. Verse 17, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. So it essentially fits like a glove right on top of this box. It's the same dimensions as, as the ark, four feet uh, long, two feet wide. Verse 18, and you shall make two cherubim, that's angels of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony or the Ten Commandments that I shall give you. Verse 22, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the first thing we see, this first item, is this ark, or this box. And in the box is God's law. And on top of the box is this atonement lid or mercy seat or uh, cover. There's two model angels that sit on top of this lid covering the top. And the lid is essentially the place every year where the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood on this mercy seat. Of course, this was a picture of how sin could be forgiven. 
It was a picture of how God's justice could be satisfied, how when they didn't measure up to the Ten Commandments, they could still find relationship. They could still find mercy through sacrifice. Now, the big lesson here from this first item, one of the things this ark or this mercy seat teaches us about knowing God is that to know God is to know Him as our forgiver. To know God is to know Him as our forgiver. I've mentioned this before, but when we offend someone, it creates a debt. It creates a record. This is true in every civilization, in every culture, and in every human. When someone wrongs you, or cheats you, or harms you, it creates a debt. That debt can't just be wished away. It can't just be ignored. It's there. It's there in your heart. Now, as a human, you can either do one of two things. Number one, you can make them pay down that debt by pouring out your wrath. This is what most people do. When someone wrongs you or harms you or slights you, you unfriend them. You gossip about them. You strategize how to character assassinate them. You harm them back. You fight back. You destroy them, whatever it takes. And sooner or later, what you realize is that debt starts to be paid down. Sooner or later, your heart seems to tell you we're even. Now, the other option which I would recommend is to forgive them. And this is what some people do, Christian or not. That is, instead of pouring out your wrath when you've been offended or you've been slighted or hurt, instead of pouring out your wrath, you choose to forgive. But the debt in that instance doesn't just disappear. We can't just wish it away. Forgiveness is hard. It's challenging. What happens is forgiveness is that you take that debt on yourself. You absorb the harm done to you. In true forgiveness, you eat it. You take the punch yourself. You don't try to do anything to make them pay back the debt. You absorb the cost in yourself. That's hard. That's why forgiveness is hard. It's hard to do. Now, in the ark, in the mercy seat or the atonement lid, God is showing something about his mercy and his grace. He's showing us that although we've sinned against him, that there is a debt, that there is a way for that debt to be paid down, for us to be able to draw near. Every year, this high priest would go into this most holy place pictured here in this tabernacle, and he would sprinkle blood, the blood of an animal, on this mercy seat. It was a picture, again, of how through sacrifice, there was a way to pay down the debt. But the way that it was paid down was through someone else, through an alternate, through a third party, through a substitute. The technical term for this is substitutionary atonement. It means a substitute or a third party dies for our debt, dies for our sin. But in reality, it's not just a third party. Eventually, this little object lesson at the tabernacle becomes a reality. Thousands of years later, God himself, the offended party, 
takes on flesh, and he chooses to forgive. He chooses the second option. He absorbs all of our sin in his body, all of our failure to love our neighbor as ourselves, all of our disinterest in God Almighty, all of our slighting of him. He absorbs the harm done to himself. In true forgiveness, he eats it. He takes the punch himself. It's his amazing mercy, his amazing grace. He doesn't make us do anything to pay down the debt. He absorbs the cost in himself. This is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing by which we draw near to God, our atoning sacrifice. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One random guy I saw on Twitter this week tweeted something a while back that a lot of people liked. He said, we should just pin all the debt in the world to one guy and then kill him. To which a pastor responded, I'm a pastor and pal, I've got some good news for you. (laughs) Now it's kind of comical, but this is true. Jesus is truly the only guy, the one guy, the only qualified guy both God and man, who could perfectly represent us as the perfect human, and who could perfectly, as the God-man, bear the weight of our sin. So this first item really represents how God is our forgiver, how this ark or atonement lid and even the bronze altar, which we'll see uh, later in this text, previewed what was to come. And this morning, if you don't know him as your forgiver, if God is just the big man upstairs who you're perhaps distant from, I urge you to trust in God's forgiveness to you this morning. He doesn't require you to pay down your debt. He's died in your place. He's absorbed it himself. This is mercy. This is grace. Trust him this morning as your forgiver. Hebrews 10 says this in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, the next piece of furniture we're going to see is this table with bread. It's a little bit like a coffee table, but it's decked out in gold. It's in the holy place, just outside the most holy place. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So that's about three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and two feet high. So it's pretty low off the ground. Verse 24, you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth that is about three inches wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Verse 27, close 
close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pourings, pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So this second item in the tabernacle is this table. Now, what's important about the table is what's on it. It has something on it called the bread of the presence, and it would be on it at all times. Now, this isn't just like bread we would buy from the grocery store, but this is more like large, round cakes. Uh, later on, we find out that these are uh, there's 12 loaves, particularly on this table, and it represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a reminder that every tribe played a role in God's family. They all had a seat at his table, so to speak. And because it was on the table, it was an image of God's constant provision for his people at all times. It was a picture of his grace. Now, one of the things that we can learn from this table and the bread, one of the things that we learn about God is that it shows us knowing God is to know him as our provider. Knowing God is to know him as our provider. Now, at this point, God has been leading his people in the desert. They've been set free from slavery in Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea, but they're not yet ready for the promised land. God is testing them, and he's shaping them in the wilderness. Eventually, we saw just a few weeks ago how they start to get hungry. They start to get thirsty. Uh, the food and the drink in the wilderness, in the desert, isn't satisfying them. There's not enough food or water. And so God miraculously starts giving this kind of frosty, flaky stuff called manna every morning, and it's like bread. Uh, the bread would have reminded them that God loves them, that he didn't forget about them. Now, in the Bible, life in this world is actually pictured as a spiritual desert wilderness. We're not in the garden walking with God in the cool of day. We're living outside of Eden, the Bible seems to indicate. The word wilderness basically means uninhabitable place. An uninhabitable place is a place that we cannot live in. That place eventually kills us and we, unless we get some type of miraculous divine help. And in the wilderness, it's not that there's not enough water. It's just that the water is insufficient. The wells are not deep enough. And the groundwater isn't great enough. Uh, the rivers that bring down the water from the mountains will sometimes dry up without notice. The point is, is that if something doesn't come in from the outside into our lives, the world as it is will never be able to actually meet the deepest needs of our hearts. The wells, the groundwater, the things we have, our jobs, our families, our relationships, the hopes of achievement, the hopes of professional success, all these things seem great, but they never go deep enough. They won't actually fulfill our deepest needs. They won't fulfill 
our longings. And the rivers that bring down the water from the mountains are sometimes going to dry up without notice. Things in our lives, things that we rely on, can be suddenly taken away. There's injuries, there is betrayal, there is death, there is job losses. So to say that life is a wilderness is to say that life is not only a place of an inevitable pain, but it's also a place of inevitable dissatisfaction, a lack of fulfillment. But in the midst of all of that, God promises to be our provision. He promises to be the very thing that will keep coming into our lives, that will meet the deepest needs of our hearts, our provision. And this morning, perhaps if you feel forgotten, or you feel like something in your life hasn't come to pass, if you're waiting on something or you're struggling with contentment, be reminded this morning that God is a rich provider. Worship Him. Know Him. Experience Him as a provider, not just for things or better circumstances, but for God Himself. Jesus later looks back on these events in the wilderness and says that while God gave this bread miraculously from heaven, He Himself is the true bread. He says this, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. In other words, he's saying that we find our deepest needs, especially in the difficult moments in this life, we find them met by God in Christ. We don't just go to God for what we need, but we go to God as our need. He's saying that in the midst of this desert life experience, when we're on detours, especially on broken roads, come to him. Trust him. Not just for things, but for him himself. So this second item reminds us that God is our merciful provider. Now the third and final item we'll see this morning is the lampstand and also the oil that lights that lampstand. Verse 32, 31 rather. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, that's part of the flower, and its flowers shall be, shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branch, branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. The passage goes on, verse 37, you shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent, or about 75 pounds of pure gold. And these, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Verse 20, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. And the tent of meeting outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant of the Law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. So this third piece is a golden lampstand. This isn't a lamp from Target or Amazon. This is a really sturdy, expensive piece of furniture. It looks similar to what we would call a menorah today. It was in the tent in the holy place that's just outside the Holy of Holies, and it was right across from this table with the bread 
lighting up the bread and the whole room. Now, it seems like at no point ever did God want the inside of that tent not lit up in some way. That's because the tabernacle and its furniture, as I've been saying, and how it was arranged, says something about God's character and what it means to know him. And what the constant need for light teaches us this morning is that to know God is to know him as light. To know God is to know him as light. To know God as light is to know him as beauty, as truth, as life. To know him as light means we no longer walk in the darkness, but we walk in the light. We live open, we live transparent, and we live like him. And to know him as the light is to be able to say we've seen the light, that we were once blind, as the song goes, but now we see. And we see because we see Jesus, who is the light. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. At the end of the day, Christianity doesn't agree with the optimistic thinkers out there who are saying we can just fix everything if we try hard enough, if we just muster up the strength within us, we can save the world. But Christianity also doesn't agree with the pessimistic thinkers out there who are saying the future is just so bleak, the world is just so totally shot. The message of Christianity is this, things are bad. There is darkness. The world is worse than we thought. Things are not as they should be. Things really can be dark. But there's hope. And that hope doesn't come from the inside of us. It comes from the outside of us. As the book of Isaiah says, On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that it doesn't say light from the world has sprung up, but it says a light upon the world has dawned. That light comes from the outside. There's a light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us, to show us true life. If you study religions, all of the founders of the great religions say in one way or another, I'm here to show you the way to spiritual reality. Do all of this. They essentially give advice. But Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He says, I am the light. I am spiritual reality itself. You could never get to me by yourself, so I've come down to you. When we realize that, when we, we see him as the light, hope fills our hearts. We too become lights to this world. We break free to live in the light instead of living in the darkness. And we see God not just as useful, but as beautiful, as true, and good. Ultimately, these truths about the tabernacle point us to the living God of today. God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be with them. And he does that finally, fully, and forever in Jesus Christ. John says in his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word there, of course, 
is that he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us fully and forever. And this morning, just like God did thousands of years ago, God desires to continue to get Egypt, the old ways of this world, out of our hearts. And the secret to freedom this morning from enslaving patterns of sin, the old ways in our lives, is to worship Him. We need worship, not just music, but with our wills, with our minds, with our lives. Powerful worship. The ability to sense this God, the God of forgiveness, the God of provision, the God of light. To be moved by all that he's done for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.